Let's look together at the book of Daniel in chapter 1. Uh, the book of Daniel in chapter 1. And let's once again put ourselves into uh, the sandals of these young men. Uh, here we have these exiles uh, taken forcibly from their homeland by the Babylonians. And they've been conscripted into the king's service. They've been taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. And they are now surrounded by a pagan culture, a pagan worldview, a pagan living that is very different from uh, what they're used to, from what they believe, from what they know to be true and good and right. But the exile of these young men has its purpose. And this morning, we are going to continue learning some lessons from what God teaches us here in the opening verses of the book of Daniel. And so I want to begin reading Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 7. So verse 1 through verse 7, and remember this is the very word of God. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now we are focusing this morning on verses 3 through 7. And this group of exiles that included Daniel and his friends. And last Sunday, I mentioned that we can take these verses and separate them into three headings. So here they are again. Uh, verses 3 and 4, the taking of the exiles. Verses 4 and 5, the provision for the exiles. And then verses 6 and 7, the renaming of the exiles and last sunday we spent all of our time talking about the taking of these exiles what it was like for these young teenage boys to be taken from their homes and placed in this foreign land and we saw that the taking of these young men was a fulfillment of prophecy that it was an act of nebuchadnezzar capturing for himself trophies plundering judah's elites 
we saw that this plan of taking these teenage boys was, was the outworking of a strategic plan, a plan of indoctrination, so that these elite ones of Judah would influence other Judahites to give themselves to the Babylonian way. Though Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man, we saw last week that he was a strong leader and that the taking of these exiles was part of his shrewd scheme to surround himself with capable men. And finally, underneath all of Nebuchadnezzar's cruel intentions, we saw that the taking of these boys was actually a kindness of God's providence. That God had bigger plans for these boys than even Nebuchadnezzar knew. So this morning we come to our second and third headings. And our second heading is the provision for the exiles. And this is found in verses 4 and 5. And as we look at these verses, I see three valuable treasures for us to take away from these two verses concerning the provision that Nebuchadnezzar made for these young men. And so here they are. Number one, we have here an illustration of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. We have here an illustration of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. I've heard Pastor Merle say many times it's his favorite proverb. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That proverb teaches that if we give ourselves to education, and if we give ourselves specifically to developing skills, God will often use our skills as a way of bringing us into a position of influence. So did you notice that in the beginning of verse 4, we are told the kind of young men who who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't all the young men of Jerusalem that were taken into exile. It was the young men who were without blemish, of good appearance. So they were to be healthy young men. They were to be able-bodied young men. But they were also to be skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Now make no mistake, what happened to these young men was a cruel thing. What happened to these young men was a terrible thing. We talked last week about their suffering. But we still see here that God brought these young men into a place where they would have real influence on the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time. These young men were taken when others were left behind because of their knowledge, because of their wisdom, because of their understanding. Because they were competent in the things that they had learned. And so I want to say a word to the young people in this room. Young people, do you want to be world changers for Christ? Do you want to be used by God in big and mighty ways? Do you want to live a life that makes a major difference and really helps people see how great the Lord Jesus Christ really is? If you do, then the primary calling that you have right now, besides honoring your parents and being a faithful sibling, is to give yourself 
to learning as much as you can while you can. I am sure there are many in this room who are now adults who would be quick to say that if they could do it all over again, they would seize the opportunities of their younger years to learn more. The younger years of our lives are precious because during those years, somebody else is taking care of the mortgage. Somebody else is making sure you have clothes to wear and that the bills are paid and there's food on the dinner plates. When you're young, you don't have to worry about those things. Your parents do. And so, living off of the love and the care of your parents, you honor their efforts by investing yourself into learning as much as you can about this world. And the more you grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom, the more you pursue certain skills and grow in those skills, the better prepared you will be to have an influence in this world for the glory of Christ. You may stand before kings. Mount Hermon, this is an important lesson for each of us. Christians are to be a people with a high view of education. When God chose to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there were already many, many people in Jerusalem, but God brought Nehemiah a very well-educated man to lead God's people in that project. When it was time to rebuild the temple and to bring God's people back to his word, God sent Ezra, another man, well-educated, well-skilled. When choosing his disciples, Jesus chose common men who were fishermen and tax collectors. But then he raised up Paul. A man trained in the finest rabbinical schools. A man who sat at the feet of the the most noteworthy teacher of his time, Gamaliel. And that was the man that, that Jesus appointed to be apostle to the Gentiles. Proverb 1, seven says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't be a fool. Don't despise learning. Do you want your life to be most useful to Christ? Do you want to love Him with all of your mind as well as all of your heart? When you sing, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to Thee, do you want that life to have its maximum effect for God's glory? If you do, then we must be a people who are willing to learn. Uh, Certainly God can use folks who know very little, and sometimes he does. But in general, it is those who are skilled in their work who God uses to stand before kings. And so we have here in our passage an illustration of that truth. Well, second, we have here in our passage the lesson that God's people can live and work in a pagan governmental system. God's people can live and work in a pagan governmental system. This is the kind of question that Christians are beginning to ask more and more. Can a person be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet work in American politics or hold political office? Or suppose a wicked president is in office, operating out of an ungodly worldview. 
and that this wicked president is endorsing many unrighteous policies. And yet suppose that president offers you the opportunity to be on his staff or to serve in a, as an advisor or to fill a cabinet position. Can a believer in the gospel, a Christian, an ambassador for Christ, serve in an administration like that? Well, it's not an easy question. But Daniel and his friends seem to be an example for us showing that it is indeed possible to be a faithful worshiper of the true God and yet work in a very pagan governmental administration. In fact, the tenor of the scriptures that we have in the Old Testament concerning how the Judahites were to live while they were in Babylon is that God's people are to live and to work and to engage with the culture that they find themselves in. The fact that things are not as they ought to be doesn't mean that we completely separate ourselves from them. So you remember, uh, right after Daniel and his friends are taken into exiles, there's a period of years, and then in 586 B.C., uh, there's the, the third and final wave of exiles that are taken into Babylon. And Jeremiah writes those exiles a letter. And do you remember what he said? He didn't say, form your own inner circles and stay away from everything Babylonian. Isolate yourselves from the culture. Create monasteries. That's, that's not what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you're to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So one lesson that we seem to be able to learn from Daniel and his friends in this book, and it's similar to a lesson we can learn from Joseph in the book of Genesis is that a true follower of God can serve in a pagan context, even in a pagan government, even serving a pagan king. And these men did so genuinely. They weren't spies. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they weren't secretly working behind Nebuchadnezzar's back to bring the government down. They sincerely held the offices that they were given. And they fulfilled them, and, and they longed for the flourishing of the kingdom in which they now lived. Now understand, working in this pagan government did bring unique challenges and obstacles into their lives. Working in this pagan system didn't mean that they got to compromise their principles. Not at all. They had to remain obedient to God in everything. And when the king issued an edict or a decree that violated the will of the true God, they had to obey the true God and not King Nebuchadnezzar. So yes, it was appropriate for them to work in this pagan government, but they were also required to be faithful to God above all. And dare we forget, this loyalty to God meant being cast into a furnace of fire, it meant being thrown into a den of lions. 
And so seeking to be a man or woman of integrity, honoring God and yet working in a pagan culture, it might cost you your life. But it is also through Christians doing this that light shines in the darkness. We as Christians make the greatest impact on our culture, not by isolating ourselves, not by fleeing to the wilderness. We make the greatest impact by being serious about our commitment to God, being serious about our identity as blood-bought disciples of Jesus, and then fulfilling the callings He gives us right here, right now, in the midst of the culture in which He has placed us. And that's what we see Daniel do. And that's what we see Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do. And then third, we see in this passage that we have here an indication of the value of worldly education. We have here an indication of the value of worldly education. Now, let me be very clear. When I use the term worldly education, I am not meaning anything sinful or wicked. There are some subjects in the world that you should not go become an expert on. There are some things that it would be sinful for you to go and study. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about secular learning. And what we see in this passage is that secular learning has its place even for the people of God. We can learn from the best thinkers and the writers and the leaders of this world even if they weren't always believers. In this case, we read in verse 4 that these exiles were to be educated in the literature and in the language of the Chaldeans. Um, Today, we would call that Akkadian literature. It included works from the Babylonians themselves, but also many works that were co-opted from the Assyrians and brought into Babylonian culture. So maybe you've heard of the, the law code of Hammurabi, That was probably something that Daniel and his friends would have studied. Uh, They almost certainly would have uh, read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Maybe you're familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. That would probably have been part of their studies. Uh, Certainly Daniel and his friends were schooled in the worldview of the Babylonians. They were made to learn about the various pagan gods and the Babylonian understanding of how the world worked. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's name literally means son protected by Nebo. And Nebo was the Babylonian god of learning and understanding and wisdom. So education seemed to have been important to Nebuchadnezzar, and he made sure that those who were to serve in his palace received a solid Babylonian education. Now, is this really a good thing? Is it good that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego received this Babylonian education? Shouldn't we as Christians say that this was bad? That they were taught all of these pagan ideas? And yet notice that in the passage there is no record here of Daniel and his friends making any protest. They're going to protest the food that Nebuchadnezzar gives them to feed their bodies, but they do not protest the literature that they are given to feed their minds. And in fact, when we look at the pages of Scripture, we find that God's people are not afraid of learning about the worldviews of others. In the New Testament, we find the Apostle John drawing from the Egyptian scholar Philo. 
In the book of Titus, we find Paul quoting a, a Cretan philosopher. And this is particularly important for parents as we think about how to educate our children in a time of worldview clashes. Do we shelter our kids from other worldviews? Should we try and pretend that there aren't people out there who believe in evolution? Should we try and hide from our kids the prevailing notions about homosexuality and transgenderism and sexual promiscuity? Well, friends, I'm convinced that that's the opposite of what we should do. If we try and shelter our kids from other worldviews until they leave our homes, we will find that they are ill-equipped to engage a lost world. If our kids do not hear about evolution or the Big Bang until they hear it from a secular professor in a college classroom, they might well wonder why their parents were afraid for them to hear this. Do we lack confidence in the biblical worldview? Do we not believe that in the battle of ideas, Christianity is in fact the truth and it can hold its own against other worldviews? When we wisely, thoughtfully, prayerfully expose our kids to these other worldviews while we are with them, able to help them think through them biblically, we will find that they can be better equipped and prepared and ready to engage a lost world. So let's not send our kids out into the world without having taught them the skill of discernment. And discernment is learned by reading and encountering people who have different worldviews than our own. We have to know how to listen to other thinkers and other ideas and how to take what is good and how to throw out what is evil. Parents need to do this carefully, certainly prayerfully. They need to make sure that the kids are first and foremost rooted well in the truths of God's word. And we as church members need to help each other with this kind of thing. But to put it simply, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know this, but by giving Daniel and his friends a Babylonian education, he was only better equipping them to serve their God in Babylon. He was only helping them know how to better live as followers of the true God in that pagan culture. And by helping our kids learn about other worldviews in light of Scripture, we prepare them to better serve their God in this world in which we find ourselves. So that is the provision for the exiles. Now we move to our final heading on these verses, the renaming of the exiles. The renaming of the exiles. Look at it again in verse 7. Does everybody see verse 7? And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So first there's Daniel. And Daniel appears not only here in the book of the Bible that bears his name. We also have Daniel mentioned by his contemporary Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 14. And he's mentioned in a very positive way. Ezekiel clearly thought of Daniel as a very good and godly man from the way that he speaks of him in Ezekiel 14. Now Daniel and his friends had Jewish names that honored the true God, Yahweh. The name Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. 
Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh helps. So all four of these young men had God-honoring, God-exalting names. But now they come to Babylon and their names are changed. Daniel is now going to be called Belteshazzar, which means Belet, protect the king. Belet was a pagan goddess associated with dreams in the netherworld. Hananiah's name is changed to Shadrach, which means I am very fearful. Mishael's name was changed to Meshach, which means I am of little account. And Azariah's name was changed to Abednego, which means slave of Nebo or slave of Nego. In other words, these kids are given humiliating names, pagan names, names very different from what they once had. And this is all part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan of indoctrination. He purposefully chose young people from Judah, not old people set in their ways. He chose young people from Judah because he assumed they would be less firm in their identity, more easily molded into the kind of people he wanted them to be. And by changing their names, Nebuchadnezzar established his authority over these young men. And he showed his intent for them to be incorporated into the Babylonian way of life. And frankly, when we consider that these were just young teenage boys and that they experienced these things, it is all the more remarkable that they continued to trust and serve the true God in the face of these pressures. So I see two lessons for us here in the renaming of these boys. First, if we are not firm in our identity as God's people, the culture will change who we are. If we are not firm in our identity as God's people, the culture will change who we are. Nebuchadnezzar could change these boys' names, but as much as he tried, he could not change them. By God's grace, they knew who they were. As followers of Yahweh, they were firm in their identity. They were servants of the Lord. And because of their their security and their identity, because they knew who they were, what they stood for, and what they believed, they were able to stand in the face of many trials. I mean, imagine just being called these names. right? You of little account. That's your name. Every time somebody called you of little account. Come here. But he knew who he was. Meshach, I am a child of the true God. Who are you? What is your identity? Do you get your identity first and foremost from your family roles? Well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother. Do you get your identity first and foremost from your specific callings? I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, maybe I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a whatever. Do you get your identity first and foremost from your national or state affiliation? I am an American, I am a North Carolinian. Do you get it from your politics? I am first and foremost a conservative, or a liberal, or a Republican, or a Democrat. What shapes your identity? Well, at the end of the day, if you are a Christian, this must be true for you. 
that the most important thing about who you are is that you are a blood-bought saint belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ with heaven in your future and God is your Father and the Bible is a light for you. You are a Christian. And that has to be the number one thing about you. Let everything else go. If I'm no longer a husband or a father or a son, if I'm no longer a sibling, if I'm no longer a pastor or a preacher, if I'm no longer an American or a North Carolinian, if I'm no longer this political persuasion or that political persuasion, if all of those things by tragedy or other reasons are, are just taken away, they're just gone. Yet I know who I am. Even in the midst of a foreign land like Babylon, I am a Christian blood-bought child of the true king is that who you are is that how you think of yourself is that your identity if not then you're in a situation where you're being molded and shaped by the culture and if you don't let the bible tell you who you are the culture will tell you who you are and you'll begin to believe it the second lesson i see here is the importance of training our children in righteousness while they are young, even very young. Because I don't know how else to explain the faith of these young men. I mean, absolutely, God was powerfully at work in them. But it appears that these teenage boys were already firm in their faith in God, confident in their identity as his servants before they were taken into Babylon. We don't usually become resolute in our faith in the midst of the storm. Our roots have to go deep before the storm comes. So something happened before Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 to get these boys ready to be who they are. And the answer most likely lies in those adults who raised them, who trained them up, who influenced them, who cared for them and instructed them. Godly young men and godly young women, they don't come out of nowhere. Godly young men and women come from the grace of God working through adults who intentionally, lovingly, consistently model for them and teach them godliness. Is that something we're doing? In the case of these young men, we are reminded through them that we do not know when sudden and extreme changes might come into our lives. One day they were with their parents. One day they were with their grandparents. One day they were with their relatives. And then boom, they're taken away. And today maybe our children are with us. Our grandchildren are with us. And we're, we're able to teach them and instruct them. We're not promised we'll have that opportunity tomorrow. And therefore we cannot assume that we have all the time in the world to disciple our children. Instead, we must disciple our children right now. We must begin while they are very young, telling them the most glorious and important truths in the world. Even while they're very young, we must teach them the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, His precious promises, how He can be counted on. While they are young, we must teach them self-control, as we're going to see Daniel and his friends exemplify in this very chapter. We must teach our kids right and wrong and we must do it now. We're not promised we'll have that opportunity tomorrow. If the parents of these young men could speak to us, 
They would tell us to savor every day with our children and grandchildren and to make the most of every day, giving them as much truth and love as we possibly can. And children, young people, make sure that you hear and heed what your godly parents and grandparents are teaching you because you will not have them forever. Your parents won't be with you forever. Your grandparents won't be with you forever. Serious trials might come upon you quicker than you think. So while they are with you, hear them, heed them. Proverbs 3, 1 through 4, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. You can almost hear Solomon, and he's, he's anxious. He knows, I may not be able to talk to you this way forever, son. Remember what I tell you now. Hold on to it. He says later, bind these truths around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find good success in the sight of God and man. And of course, the most important teaching of all, the most important lesson we can ever give our children is the lesson of the gospel. We can fail to teach a thousand things, but we must not fail to teach this. It is the good news that we are sinners before a holy God, worthy of being cast into hell. But God so loved sinners that He sent His Son Jesus to bear the punishment that we deserve in our place if we turn and trust Him. When we become a disciple of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and our future in heaven is guaranteed. There is nothing greater than knowing God as our Father, Jesus as our captain of our salvation and our brother to have the Spirit dwelling within us. Jeremiah said, let the man who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, the Lord God. Oh, parents, if we're going to teach our kids anything before it's too late, we must teach them this. Everything else in this world can be counted as rubbish compared to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us make sure we teach it now. And I pray that every child in this room, every teenager, every adult knows the joy of believing in Daniel's God. Amen? All right, let's pray.